Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege and the honor that it is to open up your word once again. We know as we learned last Sunday that when your word is open, when the Bible is opened, you speak. And I pray that, Father, you would speak through me, that you would encourage our hearts to be people who focus on Christ alone this morning. Help us, Father, to remove distractions from our minds, that your word would be thought of and reflected upon deeply so that we would, uh, Lord, manifest it in the way that we live and so adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of this message is Solus Christus, which just means Christ alone. That's all it means. And um, as you know, this month we're celebrating the um, 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which officially, uh, most people say that officially it began on October 31st, 1517, when um, Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the doors of the church in Germany. However, most understand that the seeds of the Reformation were planted well before that. Um, and, um, of course, the Reformation continued well after that. So the Protestant Reformation, as we said last week, was basically a protest against the beliefs and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church of the day. The Roman Catholic Church at the time, and even today, emphasized various authorities. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church itself was an authority really the ultimate authority when it push came to shove, especially the hierarchy, like the Pope and the highest officials in the Roman Catholic Church. They emphasize the authority of tradition, and they put these authorities of the church and the Pope and tradition really on equal footing with the Scriptures. By contrast, the Reformers, as we saw last week, emphasize Scripture alone, sola scriptura, which means that Scripture is the ultimate and final authority for faith and practice. And so we saw Sola Scriptura last week. Uh, it's the first of the five solas that we want to look at this month. Like I said, Sola simply means it's Latin for alone, for alone. Now, if you're thinking about these five solas and how they fit together, someone has used the metaphor of a building. Um, if you think of a, of a building, maybe you think of Sola Scriptura as the, the foundation of that building. Some of you who, have, who are builders or have built things understand the importance of a solid foundation. Without the, the foundation of sola scriptura, the building crumbles, right? And then, taking this illustration further, there are three pillars that stand firmly upon this foundation. They are solus Christus, Christ alone, sola gratia, grace alone, and sola fide, faith alone. Those are the pillars that stand upon this foundation of sola scriptura or scripture alone. And finally, you might think of soli deo gloria, glory to God alone as the roof or the great overarching pinnacle over the, 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 the solas, the glory of God. Everything happens for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. And so this morning we have the wonderful privilege of looking really at the heart of the solas, and it is this sola of solus Christus, or Christ alone. Laying at the heart of the Protestant Reformation was the following central question. How can a guilty, condemned sinner be made right with a holy and just God? Luther wrestled with that question and struggled, even within Roman Catholicism as a monk, he struggled to find peace with God and to find rest with God. The Roman Catholic Church answered this question of how can a guilty, condemned sinner be made right with a holy and just God by basically saying, of course, it's, it's Christ. They affirmed the fact that Christ was God, and they affirmed the fact that Christ died for sinners. But when push came to shove in the daily practice of Roman Catholicism, Christ was not exclusively the answer. It was Christ and other things. In C.S. Lewis's uh, fictional story, The Screwtape Letters, some of you have read that, some of you haven't. There's an interesting uh, dialogue going on between Screwtape and Wormwood, and these are both demons. Screwtape is the uncle demon who's very experienced as far as testing Christians, and Wormwood is the, the nephew, and he's trying to train Wormwood in the, uh, the art or the ways of testing Christians. And so the uncle says this to, um, Screwtape says this to Wormwood. What we want, Wormwood, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of Christianity and, you know, 
Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychic research. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. The same old thing. You know, we do the same thing today, don't we? It's Christ and something else. It's Christ and my possessions. It's Christ and my prosperity. It's Christ and my career. It's Christ plus this, plus that. It isn't Christ alone. Well, the Roman Catholic Church in the days of the Reformation, to the question of how can a guilty condemned sinner be made right with a holy and just God, would answer, of course, Christ. But in practice, they would. it really turned out to be Christ and the church. Roman Catholic Church, Christ and the pronouncements of the Pope, Christ and tradition, Christ and the sacraments, Christ and the treasury of merits, and so forth and so forth. In stark contrast, the Reformer said it's Christ alone who is the mediator. Alone, not plus these other things. And it is on the basis of Christ's merits alone that makes salvation possible. Not on the basis of anything that we do. This is what the Bible says after all, isn't it? Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6. through 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for all the testimony given at the proper time. There is one mediator, that passage says. A mediator was one who stood between two hostile parties in order to bring reconciliation between those two hostile parties and establish peace. The reformer said, according to this text and others, Jesus is the only mediator. The reformers took the text literally. And to them, the Roman Catholic Church was essentially speaking out of both sides of their mouths and asserting on the one hand that Jesus, yes, was God's own son. They believed in the deity of Christ, still do today. And that he died for sins. And yet, in practice, they undermined his person and his work as mediator between God and men. In practice, it was a whole different thing than what they professed to believe. The Reformers didn't see this false dichotomy. The Reformers were strong on emphasizing Jesus as mediator alone. And you know why? I told you last week. Because the souls of people were at stake. I told you last week, these were sinful people just like us, saved by grace. In many occasions, they sinned greatly. But we can learn a lot from them because at the heart of what they were after was to preserve sound doctrine and they understood that the spiritual well-being of people was at stake if we didn't defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And the fact that Christ alone was mediator. It's this that I really want us to focus upon this morning. To them, there was substance behind their conviction from Scripture that Jesus alone was mediator. And so I want to look at this office of Jesus as mediator and make this point that Jesus Christ alone as mediator by virtue of who he is and what he did on the cross. Who he is and what he did on the cross. More specifically, if you're taking notes, Christ alone is mediator, first of all, by virtue of his unique identity as the God-man. And secondly, he's, he's a lone mediator by virtue of his unrivaled work on the cross. Those are your two main points. First of all, he's mediator alone by virtue of his unique identity as the God-man. This was underlined so much of what the reformers emphasized and wrote about. That his unique identity alone qualified him to be the only mediator. And so we shouldn't be looking for other little mediators in the in Roman Catholicism or the Pope or in other things that we might set forth above Jesus Christ because that robs him of his glory. Well, who is Christ? First of all, Christ is God, isn't he? John chapter 1 and verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There are some great assertions there. He is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, but He was separate from the Father, and the Word was with God, God the Father there, and the Word was God. 
The Son is God. He was in the beginning with God. Chapter 1, verse 14 of John says, And the Word became flesh. In other words, He clothed Himself with humanity and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. And listen to this. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. There is a reference to Him being God, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. The Son unfolded the Father so that we might see Him. Look at John chapter 20. After Jesus rose from the dead, He appeared to His disciples multiple times. And there was always doubting Thomas, wasn't there? who didn't believe unless he saw Jesus with his own eyes and touched him with his own hands. And in John chapter 20, verse 24, it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came and appeared to them. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. This is post his resurrection. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your, here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. But Thomas, and Thomas answered and said to him, What? My Lord and my God. Two titles that really belong to God alone. And yet Thomas is attributing to Jesus the fact that he is God. He calls him Lord and he calls him God. Jesus is God. He has always been God. He is self-existent and eternal. But I want you to note that he has not always been man. He became man in his incarnation. In the passage we read earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he's called the man Christ Jesus, emphasizing his humanity. In the Gospels, you've read them. We read all about Jesus' humanity. Jesus was born of a human mother, Mary, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 7. He got tired and became weary, John chapter 4, verse 6. He became thirsty and hungry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, upon his temptation. He experienced sorrow and sadness, according to John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus was human. All we got to do is read the Gospels. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 says that Jesus, even while remaining God, humbled himself by taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And their form doesn't mean that he only appeared to be human, but that he took on human flesh. He became man. He didn't cease to be God, but he added humanity to his deity during during his incarnation. When you think about the incarnation, um, uh, don't ever think about it as a subtraction of Jesus' deity, but in addition. During his humanity, Jesus lived as the God-man in dependence upon the Spirit of God. He gave up the independent use of His divine attributes, they were, but they were still at His disposal. He was the God-man. So the Reformers looked at this, and they said, we need to worship Christ supremely. He is incomparable. He is worthy to be adored. No one measures up to Him. He is unique by virtue of His identity as the God-man. He is fully God and fully man, 100% God, 100% man. Two natures in one person. And no one can claim this. No one. And both of these were necessary. He had to be the God-man. He had to be God if He was going to atone for the sins of, of sinners such as you and I. Because only God alone is able to atone for the sins committed against an infinite God. Think about that. Only someone who is fully God can atone for sins committed against an infinitely holy God. And he had to be man. Because on the one hand, as man, he perfectly fulfilled God's standard of absolute obedience. That's what we call Jesus' active righteousness. His perfect life of obedience on behalf of repentant sinners like you and I, who are not able to live perfectly and are not able to follow God's law perfectly. Even one thought or one sinful motive separates you from the presence of God. Even just one bad motivation, evil motivation, 
that isn't solely for the glory of God separates you from an infinitely holy God. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness as a man. Not only that, but as man, he experienced the full range of human struggles that we go through. And listen, was victorious, wasn't he? So that he having partaken of flesh, but having been human and lived perfectly and withstood every temptation, he is able to be a merciful and faithful high priest for you and I. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. The whole point in the book of Hebrews is Christ is better. Christ is greater than the angels. Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is greater than the old covenant. Christ is greater than anyone. He is better. His sacrifice is better and all sufficient. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of humans here, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Speaking of Jesus' victory over sin and Satan and over death, and might free those. That's, those are every single human being who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, all things humanity speaking, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and make propitiation for the sins of the people. And listen to this. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In other words, beloved, Jesus can help you. He can help you. He understands. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, there's both his humanity and his deity in one place. Jesus was his human name, right? Son of God points to his deity as God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was perfect and blameless, wasn't he? He was victorious. I would rather follow a high priest and imitate a high priest who was perfect, who struggled in ways that I struggle with, and yet he never fell into sin. How about that? Blameless. Verse 16, Therefore, in light of this great high priest, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's good to be needy as people, isn't it? When you have Christ. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you who are believers, who are, who are, put your faith in Jesus Christ as your high priest, go to him. Go to the God man. Go to him who is God. And go to him who, who was 100% man and, and he took upon the, the, the struggles of humanity and yet never ever sinned. He was perfect. He understands what you're going through. Go to him confidently. He is not a distant savior, is he? He is not one who turns his back on our problems and the things that pain us and and says, get away from here. I don't want you here anymore. I'm tired of you coming with the same old problem over and over again. Here comes Kempis Hernandez once again. Now it says that you may find mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. That's why we approach the throne of grace. Do you see Do you feel something of the tension that the reformers felt in their hearts as they're looking at Jesus, the God-man, his unique identity as 100% God and 100% man, and they reflected upon his unique identity as such? They grew in their disdain and their disgust of anyone, especially the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope, who in practice would rob Jesus of his glory as the one mediator between God and men. They didn't understand that. Because the spiritual well-being of people was at stake. They didn't understand why the Roman Catholic Church would point to other mediators. 
Why is it that we, that we celebrate the Mass, for instance? The Mass that, that basically uh, we're, we're reenacting, in a sense, Jesus' sacrifice over and over again through this doctrine called transubstantiation, where the elements are the bread and the cup literally in the hands of the priest turn into the literal blood and body of Jesus. Why would we do that? Isn't Jesus' death, atoning death, definitive and certain and finished? Why do it again? Why? Why do we go to these human priests who are weak as we are and sinful? And in those days, a lot of them were corrupt. And these people are going to these human priests. Why would we do that when according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the ultimate high priest, the perfect God-man who understands our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Why not go to uh, the great high priest of the reformers? Why rob Jesus of his glory? The reformer said, no, Christ alone is mediator by virtue of who he is and his uniqueness and his unique identity. He is sufficient. He is sufficient. We don't need any of the other things. We don't need other mediators. Because of who Christ is, he alone qualifies as mediator. Secondly, He alone qualifies as mediator by virtue of his unrivaled work on the cross. His unrivaled work on the cross. People, reformers of the day said, you don't need Christ and Roman Catholicism. You don't need the pronouncements of the Pope. You don't need tradition. You don't need sacraments, etc. You only need Christ. In the words of Colossians chapter 2 verse 10, in Christ you are complete. You have everything that you need in Jesus. And they pointed to his work on behalf of sinners as final and definitive and finished. The glory of the cross, the glory of the cross, they reflected deeply upon the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished and his merits on the cross for sinners. I spent a lot of time doing this the last couple of weeks, especially in preparation for this, on the beauty of our salvation. I want you to go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We are so blessed, aren't we? Great salvation. Spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Beyond this present world. We have so much to be thankful for, beloved. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just think about that. Let it sink in. Peace with God. Through Jesus Christ. Through whom, through Christ, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So he sustains us. And we exult, excuse me, we exult in hope of the glory of God. We who are Christians have a great hope. We who are Christians have a great, um, have a great re- uh, Redeemer, Jesus, who as our mediator has established peace between ourselves and God. We have a great salvation. But I, I wonder how many of us often stop and really reflect and relish upon how this was accomplished by Christ. What makes what he did so unrivaled? First of all, obviously, that he is the God-man alone. But also, what was, the, what was so beautiful about how he went about accomplishing this? Well, there's this little word in chapter 5, verse 1, if you will notice, justified. Justified. And that word is the verb form of the word, the noun justification. And it's pregnant with meaning, pregnant with meaning. We don't have time to unpack its fullness in this time, but I want us to reflect upon justification just for a few minutes. Because when you think about justification and being justified, you are automatically transported into the law courtrooms. It's language of the law courtroom where there are judges and juries and prosecutors and attorneys and defendants and verdicts that are rendered for, of innocent or guilty. But this is not just any other courtroom as it pertains to our salvation. This is the ultimate courtroom, the great courtroom of heaven itself, where God himself presides over this great ultimate courtroom. And what kind of a God is he? He is a righteous God, a righteous judge who resides over this heavenly courtroom. He's flawless. He's perfect. 
He never makes mistakes in his judgments. He is utterly impartial. He is utterly impeccable. This is who God is. And he never makes mistakes. And in this courtroom is every other person who's been born into this world or will be born. Every person will stand before this judge in this courtroom. And every person is the point that Paul has been making in the book of Romans. Every person stands condemned, guilty before a holy God. This is what he says. Look at chapter 3 of Romans and verse 9. He has been making the point that whether you're a Jew and you're a moralist or you you boast in your privileges as a Jew or you're a non-Jew who is either moral or you're a libertarian, you live it up, everybody is under sin. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is an underline all of the none and no ones here, okay? As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If that was a description from Paul about the present day at that time, how much more so today, huh? And at the heart of it is verse 18. People today don't fear God. Don't fear God. So Paul says everybody is under condemnation because everybody is a sinner. Everybody is a sinner. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. In other words, he is saying in this divine courtroom, no one, no one, no one is innocent. Everyone is guilty because we are all lawbreakers. Even if you just, if it was possible for you to just break one rule of God in, in, a, in a 60 year lifetime here on this earth, you would be eternally separated from a holy God apart from Jesus. Look at verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh, no human being will be justified in his sight. There's the word justified again. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What does the law do? It exposes our sin. What does the law do? It condemns us because it exposes the fact that we're not able to live perfectly before God. We're lawbreakers. We're guilty. And so we stand condemned. No one can say, I am not a sinner. No one can say, I am innocent. I'm a really good person. First time you hear that, you ought to laugh at the person. And then lovingly tell them what the Bible says. Everybody is a sinner. We are sinners by nature. In Romans chapter uh, 5, verses 12 and following, Paul begins to make the point that we are all descendants of Adam. And so through Adam, sin has been passed down to us. Every person is by nature a sinner. Psalm chapter 58, verse 3, the wicked is estranged from the womb. Psalm 51, verse 5, in sin did my mother conceive me. By nature we are sinners. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says that by nature we are children of wrath. You and I are not sinners only because we sin. We sin precisely by, by nature because by nature we are sinners. It is what we do. We're sinners from the womb. How many of you have taught your, your newborn baby to scream at you? Or to yank a toy out of the other kid's hand when they're toddlers? How many of you taught them that? Nobody did. Babies are sinners by nature, and so are we. So we're sinners by nature. We're sinners by commission, meaning that we commit sin actively. We're lawbreakers. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, There is no man who does not sin. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners by, also by omission, if you want to put it that way. By those things that we fail to do perfectly that God requires. Even things that we're ignorant of. Do you love God perfectly with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. Every moment of the day? With every motive and every attitude, every single moment of the day? No. We sin against God every moment of the day by not loving Him supremely with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Next time somebody tells you, I'm not a sinner, dude. So you know what? Do you love God supremely every moment of the day, every single second, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The answer is no, we don't. We are sinners by omission. We don't love God perfectly. We don't love our fellow man perfectly. And we certainly don't obey God's law perfectly. And that leads us to a major problem, doesn't it? We need rescuing. We can't solve the problem of our sin on our own. We're rebels and in mutiny against our maker, you understand. So in this divine courtroom, we stand condemned before a holy and just God. Now here's the great tension. Here's the great tension. In this great courtroom, God must preserve his justice and his righteousness and his holy character. And yet at the same time, because he loves sinners, he desires that sinners who are guilty and stand condemned would be declared righteous. How does God solve this problem? And I say problem from our perspective, not problem for him. How does God preserve his justice and his holiness and his righteousness? Because he must punish sin. He can't sweep sin under the rug. Otherwise, he's not a just, holy God. And yet at the same time, he loves sinners and wants to declare them righteous, though they're guilty and stand condemned. How does he do this? Well, it's not going to originate in us. We cannot measure up to God's perfect standard. We're guilty, condemned. So how does he solve this problem? Look at chapter 3, verse 21. But now, here's the contrast. Apart from the law, because what did the law do? The law condemns us as lawbreakers. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or shown, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So this is not anything new. The law and the prophets pointed to this utter reality of God's righteousness shown in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith, here's the means, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look at verse 24, being justified. There's your your law courtroom language again. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How does God preserve His justice and His holiness and at the same time is able to pronounce repentant sinners righteous who were guilty and stood condemned? It is by, by granting them, attributing to them, ascribing to them an alien righteousness, Luther called it. Outside of ourselves, because we're sinners by nature and we cannot be good on our own. We need something outside of ourselves. That is the righteousness of God in verse 21, specifically pinpointed for us in the atonement of Jesus Christ. Christ, what did Jesus do? Look look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus bought out from slavery to sin sinners such as you and I. But he didn't do it with possessions or money. He did it by laying down his own life. By sacrificing himself as the perfect God-man. Beloved, you know what Jesus does in this courtroom? If you want to take the illustration further, this God-man says, step aside, Hernandez. Step aside, guilty sinner. I will take your place. I will be the sin bearer. I will take your punishment that you deserve. And I will take my father's wrath for you. I will do that. That's what propitiation in verse 25 points to. Look at that. Whom God, Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, speaking of his atoning death, as a propitiation in his blood, by which he means his death, through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of Christ's death. I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How does God preserve his justice and declare repentant sinners as righteous? It is through the sacrifice of Christ. And propitiation there in verse 25 refers to a wrath-appeasing, wrath-removing sacrifice. Couldn't be anybody. Jesus alone qualifies the God-man, right? 
as the one who was going to be the wrath-removing sacrifice, taking upon his Father's wrath for us. Think about that. In the Chronicles of Narnia, you remember the scene where Aslan, the, the lion who is to be, who's supposedly Christ, when he dies, he dies to pay a ransom to the wicked witch, right? Who's supposedly Satan. That's the worst part of the movie. I know it was kind of intense and all of that, and I was into it too, but I was like, upon further review, <laughs> it's terrible. Do you know why? Because it wasn't Satan who needed to be appeased. Jesus suffered and died to satisfy his father's wrath aimed at our direction. For our sin. We are guilty. We are condemned. You say, what about this wrath thing? This anger or wrath is not like human anger or wrath, is it? It isn't. Human anger is reactionary. It is arbitrary. It is vindictive. It is selfish. God's wrath is His necessary and appropriate response against rebel sinners in the light of His holiness and in the light of the fact that He is a righteous, just God. He must punish sin. Because He is holy and just, He cannot tolerate sin or simply sweep sin under the rug. So guess who stepped in in our place? Jesus. Jesus. He was the wrath appeasing removing sacrifice. This is what is known as the great doctrine of penal substitution. Okay, big words, don't worry about it. Penal means penalty or punishment. Substitution means what? Somebody in your place. Jesus took your place, your punishment that you deserved. He stepped in in our place. Penal substitution. Christ came to this world to obey perfectly. The law that you and I could not obey perfectly, God's law. He came to suffer the suffering that you and I deserved. He died in our place for our personal sins. At the cross, the Son of God absorbed God's wrath for my personal sin. He satisfied the wrath of God that I deserved. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says that Jesus is himself, he himself, emphatic there in the Greek. He himself alone is the propitiation, the wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Listen, you won't marvel at this unless you personalize it. Personalize it. Otherwise, it's just ambiguous up there, a big theoretical thing for you. He died for your sins and for my sins. Such is the love of God that He would desire to glorify Himself in the salvation of sinners in and through the person of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, His own Son, sacrificing His own Son, cursing His own Son on the cross. That's how Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Speaking of Jesus, He was cursed at the cross. Why do you think that the Father turned His back on Him on the cross? And Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken Me? Because they, they who had experienced Father, Son, and Spirit, eternal relationship and intimacy, unhindered by anything, at that moment, Jesus was the great sin-bearer, and He was taking upon Himself the fullness of the Father's wrath because of your sins and because of my sins. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. Personalize it. He was pierced through for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The chastening of, of my, uh, uh, my, the chastening for, of our well-being fell upon him, of my well-being. And by his scourging, I am healed. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sin in his own body on the cross, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, for by his wounds I am healed. By his wounds. Beloved, we could not do this. It's Christ alone. His death on the cross is unrivaled. It's Christ alone who made it possible for God to preserve his justice and his righteousness and his holiness and declare the worst of sinners righteous at the same time. How did he do that? Not by sweeping our sins under the rug, but by putting Jesus on the cross to die for our sins. Thus satisfying his justice. And by the way, instead of receiving punishment, 
What does he give you? He gives you the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness declares you righteous because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And listen to this, how did God reconcile sinners to himself? He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's one of the most beautiful verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21, in all of Scripture, that you and I need to return to over and over and over again. It's the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Imputed simply means to ascribe or attribute something to someone that they did not earn or do. Like when someone credits you with something that you did not earn, you did not work for this. It is a gift. This happened at salvation. It's called the great exchange. My sin was placed upon Jesus. His righteousness was placed upon me. The worst of me upon him, the best of him upon me. He bore and paid for my unrighteousness, and I am clothed in his righteousness. I'm forgiven. I'm adopted as God's child. I'm granted eternal life. I have everything that pertains to to life and godliness. I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. One day I will reign with Christ on earth. All of the blessings, on and on and on. The great exchange. My sin, his righteousness. Jesus is unrivaled in his work on the cross, having merited for sinners what we need most. And what is that? Salvation from our sin and from God's coming and pending wrath for our sins. What lessons do we learn from this, beloved? What lessons do we learn? First of all, the Reformation and these truths from God's word, because that's where they were getting them from, right? And even... Reformation or whatever in church history, we better make sure that we're testing those things in accordance with sola scriptura, right? But what lessons do we learn? I learned from the Reformation that salvation in Christ is my greatest need. It's my greatest need and your greatest need. Not self-fulfillment, not success, not relationships, not a career, retirement, not materialism, not more self-esteem to feel better about myself. Not more friends. Our greatest need is to be saved from our sins and from God's wrath. And hear me, it is only by turning from your sins and trusting in Christ's death alone that you will be rescued from God's impending punishment. Only in Christ alone. It doesn't matter if you've been in the church forever. It doesn't matter. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Have you been saved? You may have attended church for a long time and not be saved. You may know a lot about Christ, about Christ, but you may not know Christ intimately in relationship. So that it makes a difference in your affections and in the way that you live, in your priorities and in your pursuits. You may read the Bible very academically and and it's a a great place for personal therapy where you go in and you read the Bible and you feel really good about yourself or you're reminded of some good moralistic principles to be living by. But if you are not going to the Word of God to feast upon the person and the work of Jesus so that it drives you to your knees and, and gratitude and say, Oh Lord, I want to live my life for you. You are the point of the Bible and not my moral therapy. J.C. Rao writes, Oh, I charge every reader of this message to ask himself frequently what the Bible is to him. Is it a Bible in which you have found nothing more than, a good, moral prece- than good moral precepts and sound advice? Or is it a Bible in which you have found Christ? Is it a Bible in which Christ is all? If not, I tell you plainly, you have hitherto used your Bible to very little purpose. You are like a man who studies the solar system and leaves out in his studies the sun which is the center of it all. It is no wonder if you find your Bible a dull book, end quote. Many of us do that. And many of us can be in the church forevermore, hear message after message and not get the point of Christ and our need for Him. Many of us can read our Bibles every single day and not do it out of devotion to Christ. So the Reformation reminds me that salvation in Christ is my greatest need. The Reformation reminds me of the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. That the message should be preached to all, 
but that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And I promise you that as soon as you say that to anybody in our culture today, you are automatically an exclusivist. And you know what? Preach it. Amen. Amen. What are we living in? A pluralistic world where people believe in all kinds of different things and we're expected to tolerate everyone's views and even promote them now, by the way. It isn't just tolerating that. Now you need to live them out too. Otherwise, you are, you are an arrogant person. Unloving, hateful. There are those who say that all roads lead to heaven. Not so. Not so. Matthew 7, verse 13 says this, Enter through the narrow gate. It's constricted, in other words. Very narrow. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Notice, few find it. Why? Because you pay a price for following Jesus and people are not willing to commit their life to Christ because you will pay a price called suffering in this life. And our brethren are paying it even in a greater way in other countries as we speak. Greater than us. Maybe someday in America we will experience that too. But the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who are there on this path such as people who worship religions that are devoid of Christ, people who trust in their good works, humanitarian efforts done without Christ are damning. Religion is damning, devoid of the righteousness of Christ. Good works are damning if you're trusting in your good works, your own merits, because salvation only comes by way of Jesus' merits, His perfect life and His atoning death and His resurrection. Anything else is damning. Trusting in the American dream without Jesus is damning. Happiness in one's success is damning. Possessions, materialism, career, money, apart from Jesus is damning. It's Jesus alone who saves, not those things. And even within those things, we need to be, give, be, be, be using them for the purpose of the glory of God. To exalt Christ. So that's an exclusive call for salvation. Not found in any of those things, but in Christ alone. And there's no middle ground. No gray area. All right? There's no gray area. You ever read your Bible? Is there much middle ground in the Bible? Not a whole lot. Right? In our passage that we just read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, there are how many gates? Two? A third? Nope. Called purgatory? No. Two gates. Right? The narrow and the broad. There are two ways, the narrow and the broad. How many kingdoms exist? Two kingdoms. You're either part of God's kingdom or you're part of Satan's kingdom. How many, um, how many um, ways of life are there? Two ways of life. For the righteous or the wicked. There's life or death. There's a kingdom of light. There's a kingdom of darkness. There's truth or falsehood. There's the path of destruction or the path of life. There are two kinds of people, the righteous or the wicked. There are two ways that we can walk, being the foolish way or the wise way. They are the, there are the saved and the unsaved. There are the holy and the depraved. There is heaven or there is hell. There is no middle ground. No middle ground. The Bible says that the only way to be saved and to get to heaven is in Christ alone. His merit. He is the one mediator between God and men. The God-man Christ Jesus. Listen to Jesus himself in John chapter 14 verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You think people didn't understand what Jesus was saying there? transport yourself to that context. What would you automatically think? This guy's a lunatic. Or, holy cow, I better follow him. He's saying every other way but his way is leading me to the path of damn destruction. I'm going to be destroyed. He said, I am the good shepherd. I am the, good, the, the bread of life. I am the living water. Jesus understood that inheriting those claims automatically, you're already excluding every other name, right? Every other name. The Bible heralds him as the exclusive 
Savior, or the Savior who is exclusively the only way to heaven. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. Clear enough? No other name. Not Confucius, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Roman Catholicism, not Mary, not Joseph Smith, not career, not possession, not the American dream, not any of those things. Trusting in any person outside of Christ is damning. It leads only to hell. Again, this means nothing if you don't personalize it. You need to personalize it. Are you saved this morning? Have you been rescued from God's wrath? Have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? And if you say you're a Christian, are you trusting in Christ? It begins that way, and we continue trusting in Christ for the rest of life, right? We may struggle. There may be besetting sins that we need to repent of and come back to holding on to Jesus alone, right? Hence the exhortations in Hebrews to hold on to your confession, Jesus alone, right? But it's in Christ alone that we are saved. Have you been clothed with the righteousness of Christ? Are you standing in grace? Or standing upon trusting in your own merits, your own good works. I've been at church forevermore. I made a profession of faith, but I've never seen any fruit in my life. Listen, you need to step back and examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Say, how do I, how do I come to Christ? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and by confessing, and that involves you saying the same thing about your sin that God says. That it's an offense to him who is a holy and just God. You're agreeing with God about how, about, about what the Bible says about you, that you are a sinner who's condemned, who needs to be forgiven. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord then. That it's only on the basis of Jesus Christ alone that you can be saved and rescued. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. And that's not belief, by the way, as in a set of facts, intellectual facts that you just adopt. But he's talking about a a heartfelt commitment to what you know about Jesus and who he is, that he is unrivaled in his work on the cross, and that only his work on the cross is sufficient to achieve a right standing with God. Salvation is a gift of God, isn't it? An act of God's grace. It's not based upon your merits. It's not based upon your works. It's not based upon your performance. But Jesus' merits alone. You don't get salvation because you did something right, but because Jesus did everything right. You don't get salvation because you performed well or you continue to perform well, but because Jesus scored a perfect 10 on our behalf. You and I don't deserve salvation, but God is gracious. And though we deserve hell and judgment, he has blessed us with heaven and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The call of Christ is exclusive. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. Thirdly, the Reformation also reminds us of the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ for us who are believers. Not only are we saved by faith in Christ, but we live by faith in Jesus, don't we? We are complete in him. Like earlier when I read the, um, the excerpt from the Screwtape letters, what Screwtape says to um, Wormwood at the end, he says, substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing, he says. I find that so frightening because it reminds me of the fact that even as a believer, I can start adding things to Christ. I can start thinking that somehow my performance achieves me something before the Lord. Or I could get bored with Christ. Bored with Christ. So I'm always looking to be entertained. What's the new thing? What's going on new at Calvary Bible Church? What's the new program? What's the next thing for me to get involved in? We can be so enamored by those kinds of things and not be looking to Jesus and focusing upon him. For many of us, we want Christ on the one hand, but we also want some other things. We want Christ on the one hand, but we want a peaceful America. And if America isn't peaceful, then I'm not going to find my rest in Jesus. I'm going to be anxious. I'm going to be running around trying to find ways of going after people to make sure that they're at peace with one another. We want Christ plus comfort, 
trial-free life. So when trials come into our lives, it's like, I, I, I don't like this. And we don't go to Jesus, our high priest, for comfort and encouragement in the midst of our suffering and our trials. We want Christ plus good health. Hey, if Jesus gives me good health, I'll follow that Jesus. As long as I don't have to suffer physically. And then when we suffer physically, we don't go to him. Some of us want Christ plus prosperity and career and success in our career and being really good money makers. Some of us want Christ plus racial justice. If things are not uh, just on this earth with all ethnicities, then I'm not going to be content in Jesus. How about rooting your identity in Christ? Some of us want Christ in a perfect family. As long as everything is going well in my family, I'm good. I'll go to Jesus. He is my merciful and faithful high priest. What if those things were taken away from you? What if some of those things and other things that you can think of that we derive our happiness from and our contentment from, what if, what if some of those things never came to fruition during your lifetime? Would you still find Jesus excuse me, sufficient? Would he be enough? Would you follow him? Will you continue to follow him unreservedly, wholeheartedly? Do you love him even when all of the gifts from your own, uh, according to your own definition, are not there? Do you love the gifts or do you love the giver who is Christ? That's the problem with the health, wealth, prosperity movement. Again, not to keep beating that drum, but people will fall in love with the gifts, not the giver. If Jesus gives me those things, I'll follow that Jesus. That's a worthy Jesus to follow. If he has my happiness and everything that I want, relationships, money, prosperity, success, all of those things, I'll follow that Jesus. No. Jesus says, follow me alone and you will have eternal riches beyond this earth. Joy beyond what you can even imagine, beyond the earthly pleasures that you can experience here, which are temporal, short-sighted, and in the end will only get you hell apart from Christ. Would you still witness about him in word and deed? Do you still witness about Jesus in word and deed, even though there's, there's turmoil in our society? See, we take our eyes off of Jesus in many ways. C.H. Spurgeon writes, Look to Christ, not to self. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All of these starts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ himself. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ himself. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ himself. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep thine eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon thy mind. When thou wakest in the morning, look to him. When thou liest down at night, look to him. Oh, let it not thy hopes or fears come between thee and Jesus. Follow hard after him, and he will never fail thee. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. See, for many of our brethren, beloved, during the Reformation, it was Christ alone. Christ alone. They considered the passing pleasures and comforts of this present world as not worthy to be, to be not worthy of the glory that it was to come in Jesus Christ. It was Christ alone. It was solus Christus all the way. And I pray that that would be us personally and corporately as a body. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to be 
to your glory to live by the great truth that it's in Christ alone that we are saved, that he is the perfect God-man who alone qualifies as our mediator, that he, by virtue of his unrivaled work on the cross, he alone atones for sins. He alone satisfies your wrath and your punishment aimed at sinners. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that, Lord, has not turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus alone, but they're trusting in other things, I pray that, Father, today would be the day of salvation, that today they would turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ. Father, for the rest of us, I pray that we might find our sufficiency in Jesus, that it is in Jesus alone that we live. He is our life. I pray that, Lord, our purposes and our dreams and our goals and everything would be subordinate to the greater cause of exalting Christ in our Christian life. And in so doing, that we might be a witness before a lost and hopeless world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.